A new presidential administration means new space leadership. What's ahead for NASA? You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Administrator Jim Bridenstein stepped down last week as a new presidential administration took office. After serving in the position for about three years, Bridenstine led the agency during its return to human spaceflight from U.S. soil, saw the launch of a new Mars rover, and expanded the public-private partnership of NASA and the commercial industry into deep space. President Biden will now select the next leader of the Civilian Space Agency. Could that mean a new direction for NASA? To look back on Bridenstine's tenure and the trajectory of NASA under a Biden White House, we speak with Washington Post space reporter Christian Davenport. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. NASA's former administrator Jim Bridenstine did quite a lot during his time in office, most notably steering the agency towards getting boots on the moon by 2024. The Trump administration set that ambitious goal of a human lunar mission, and it was up to Bridenstine to put a plan in place. NASA's Artemis program seeks to do just that, send humans to the lunar surface by leveraging the private sector to help accomplish it. In his final appearance as NASA administrator, Bridenstine urged unity moving forward and asked the next administrator to continue the Artemis mission. Um, And I'll tell you, um, when a new team comes in, uh, give them all your support because they need it, they deserve it. And, uh, And of course, what we're trying to do again We're not only crossing multiple administrations, but multi-decade and multi-generational. So, uh, again, they'll have all my support, and I hope they have all your support. Uh, So go get them. Go NASA. Ad Astra. Bridenstine found widespread support in his role. Some fans even created a petition asking the Biden administration to keep him in the post. But his start as NASA administrator was far from unifying. In fact, it was a rather controversial nomination. That's where we'll begin our conversation with Christian Davenport. He covers space for the Washington Post, and he's the author of The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the Quest to Colonize the Cosmos. Christian, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Jim Bridenstine has stepped down with a new administration, comes a new head of NASA in the future. Um, but before we look forward, let's, let's take a look back. What do you think Jim Bridenstine's legacy is going to be? in his some three years at NASA? You know, Brendan, I mean, it was such a fascinating time for NASA and the space industry in general under Jim. So he really came, uh, you know, to the agency at just sort of a a momentous uh, occasion. Of course, we saw the uh, restoration of human spaceflight for NASA from American soil with the uh, Demo 2 launch for SpaceX last year. And then they followed that up with the Crew-1 launch. That was a big deal the launch of the Perseverance uh, rover uh, to Mars, uh, which could land on Mars next month. I mean, that was obviously a big deal. Mm -hmm. And he really, uh, Jim, really tried to highlight and showcase the astronaut corps. I mean, not a lot of people pay attention to that. Um, But sometimes I think the astronaut corps at NASA is kept under wraps a little bit. And, And Jim went a long way toward showcasing the amazing talent and the amazing people that the agency attracts Uh, I mean, they really do get the best of the best. So, you know, under Jim's leadership, we saw, uh, you know, this sort of graduation ceremony for the most recent class uh, of astronauts. We saw uh, that ceremony where he was uh, introducing the Artemis astronauts, the astronauts who ultimately would go to the moon as part of the Artemis program. And yeah, those are sort of PR events, but um, I think uh, that's a big part of what the administrator's job 
is to a certain extent. And then, of course, I think when you're talking about the biggest legacy, it's it's the Artemis program. It's that return to get to the moon. Uh, NASA had been trying to do it by 2028. The White House came in under the Trump administration and, and tried to move that up, that schedule up to 2024 uh, dramatically. And I think Jim was a real uh, champion in that. Uh, ultimately, I don't think they're going to meet that. Uh, they're going to be off by some years. But you know, I think I think thanks to the leadership of Jim Bridenstine, they have some real momentum, uh, and significantly, they have funding uh, from Congress. It's not the big amounts, not the three point three billion dollars that uh, NASA had wanted for its lunar lander. Uh, they got close to a billion dollars for it, and you know, again, that's not. You know, that's not the full amount, but it's not nothing either. I mean, a billion dollars for a lunar lander in the middle uh, of the coronavirus pandemic is significant. And, you know, we'll see if that's going to continue on. When Jim Bridenstine was nominated by the Trump administration, there was a little bit of pushback from Democrats. He was the first politician uh, for this position. Some Democrats, uh, like then-Senator Bill Nelson, worried that he would politicize the office. But looking back, it looks like he was able to use that congressional tightrope walking and, and being able to navigate both NASA and congressional funding to NASA's benefit. Is that another one of his legacies, is how he was able to interact with the Congress? Absolutely, Brendan. I was at the confirmation hearing in the Senate when Bill Nelson you know, kind of went after uh, Jim and said, you are not the guy for the job. Uh, and if you remember during the vote, I mean, it was very, very tight. And uh, Vice President Pence, you know, the president of the Senate was on standby in case they needed him to vote in favor uh, of Jim for him to make it in. So he made it in just by the, you know, the hair of his teeth. But since then, he worked really hard to build bipartisan support for NASA and for the Artemis program. Now, everyone loves loves NASA. It's like, you know, being for education or being against crime. I mean, everyone wants to see NASA succeed. And because he had served in Congress, he had a lot of friends there that he could go to, but he really did try to reach across the aisle. He did an event uh, with Nancy Pelosi uh, in California. I mean, he was really trying to sell the idea that the Artemis program would be inclusive, that it would be not just the next man, but put the first woman on the moon. And, uh, you know, that became a refrain for him in his stump speech. And I think it resonated with members of Congress. Uh, he pushed on the science front, too, and tried to marry science and exploration together to sort of rid the agency of those divisions and those sort of, you know, partisan fault lines. Um, so I did think he he went a long way along those lines. I mean, let's um, not sugarcoat it, though. I mean, this is a very divided, very partisan atmosphere here in Washington these days. And I think while he made significant progress there, he did not, I don't think, you know, fully transcended. But, uh, you know, that would be a very, very difficult thing to do in these times. You mentioned a little bit about the human landing system and getting congressional funding for that. Um, but that was kind of part of Bridenstine's bigger push for commercial partnerships under his administration. Can you talk a little bit about how Jim Bridenstine built upon this, you know, reliance on commercial partners to do a lot of the work that NASA did during his time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is something that goes back uh, many years through many administrations. I mean, it was George W. Bush, uh, that administration that first, you know, outsourced the delivery of cargo and supplies to the private sector. I mean, then it was SpaceX and a company called 
uh, Orbital Sciences, now uh, Northrop Grumman, that has the contract to fly uh, uncrewed missions of cargo to the International Space Station. Uh, under Obama, they kind of doubled down on that and expanded that program to include crew. So we saw the commercial crew program and those flights we were talking about earlier that SpaceX did and, and eventually Boeing perhaps this year of flying NASA's most preci precious resource, its astronauts to the space station. And now they're looking at applying that model, this public-private partnership model to deep space, to going back to the moon uh, in terms of partnering with the commercial sector uh, on this human landing system. And they've reached out um, to industry to see what they can provide. Of course, uh, you know, the biggest contract of all of them went to uh, the so-called national team that's led by Blue Origin, but has partnerships with Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman and Draper to build the spacecraft that would take astronauts to and from the surface of the moon. And you saw other companies like SpaceX and Dianetics get contracts uh, for that as well. So he's trying to harness you know, the, the growing capability in the commercial space industry and uh, leveraging that so that uh, NASA uh, can do more. And it's sort of an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, recently NASA's safety advisory panel uh, raised some concerns about that, that if everything is outsourced, NASA needs to maintain insight uh, into those programs and oversight of them to ensure that they are safe, to ensure that they meet um, NASA's uh, rigorous safety standards. So that becomes an interesting dynamic. But yes, you know, Jim Bridenstine carried on that tradition uh, of the public-private partnerships and reliance on industry, uh, taking that from low Earth orbit and now into deep space into the moon. The Trump administration, along with Jim Bridenstine, really built out that whole idea of Artemis and pushing for that moon landing in 2024. But as, as you wrote in, in your piece for the Washington Post, 2024 is likely not going to happen. Had the Trump administration continued four more years and had Bridenstine still stayed, would they have been able to meet that 2024 goal? And and what does the outlook of, of Artemis look like now that there is a new administration and new leadership? Yeah, I do not think that even if the Trump administration were in office today, they would make the 2024 deadline. There are just too many challenges. Jim Bridenstine he had said that they needed the full funding in order to make it. They needed everything to go perfectly in order to make that 2024 deadline. He likes to, Jim would off, often talk about the political challenges of getting there. And clearly, you know, there were, why he, while he does have support for Congress, he doesn't have the full support to meet the 2024 deadline and the funding that would require. Uh, but let's be honest, I mean, there were and there are some technical challenges and some big ones. I mean, we just saw this with the uh, test, uh, the hot fire test of the Space Launch System rocket. This is the massive uh, rocket that NASA wants to use to get its astronauts to the moon. They wanted to fire uh, the uh, all four of those RS-25 engines for the full duration, simulating a full flight of about eight minutes. They said they could probably get all of the data they needed uh, after a firing of four minutes. And uh, in the end ended up, you know, because they had a technical problem with the hydraulic system of uh, firing it for just over one minute. So it looks like they're gonna have to redo that test. I mean, that's just one example in a series of challenges uh, of getting to the moon. Now, what the Biden administration will do is I think first and foremost, what's happening now is the transition is uh, assessing the program. I know the transition team uh, headed by Ellen Stofan, the former uh, chief scientist at NASA, now the head of the Air and Space Museum here in Washington, DC. They're taking a hard look at um, the programs, uh, You know what's working, what's not, 
what's realistic in terms of the time frame, and I don't think that they think the 2024 time frame is realistic at all. I think, you know, interestingly though, they are committed to the Artemis program, you know, at least in theory. That, you know, so many times we've seen a new administration come in and dramatically change the direction of NASA. No, we're going to the moon. New administration comes in and says, no, we're going to Mars or an asteroid and back and forth. I think they are committed to going back to the moon and using that as a stepping stone onto Mars, but I don't think they think this 2024 deadline is realistic. So I think that will be uh, extended, but the good news is they'll, they'll carry it on. Yeah, and, and Jim Bridenstein made that plea in his kind of his his last video that he posted to Twitter to the NASA workforce saying, you know, he hopes the next administration carries this on. Do you think that there's congressional buy-in? I mean, as, as you mentioned, the money fell short, uh, but it was an unprecedented year. Um, do you think that there is congressional buy-in to continue to support this Artemis program on the trajectory that it's going now? Yes or yes and no. I mean, as somebody told me, uh, you know, a billion dollars for a human landing system for NASA that the Congress appropriated is uh, a vote of confidence in the program. It's just not a vote of confidence in the Trump schedule. Um, so again, you know, a billion dollars is, that's not nothing. And they're wanting to go uh, forward. And I think this idea of uh, putting a woman on the moon will galvanize a lot of interest. At the same time, um, you know, it's interesting to note this isn't happening um, you know, in a, in a political or geopolitical vacuum, uh, as it were. I mean, China is pushing to get to the moon. They have big ambitions there as well. Um, you know, that was one of the stated goals of the Trump administration to, uh, you know, push back to get to the moon on such an expedited timeline. I don't know that necessarily that narrative uh, will uh, inspire or motivate the Biden administration as much. But, you know, it's a fact that's out there. And I think, uh, you know, with China landing on the far side of the moon and wanting to return, uh, that could propel uh, members of Congress and the administration to act. But they have said that this is something they are going to continue on. I don't think they're going to do an about face, especially after they've already appropriated that money um, for it. And you know, the other thing is there is this rise in the commercial spaceflight sector. Now, that said, building a human lander for the moon is going to be difficult. Um, and let's not forget, I mean, this national team has got some big players involved, um, but Blue Origin uh, hasn't flown a vehicle to orbit. They've never flown people and now could be asked to flow to fly astronauts to the lunar surface. So that's going to be uh, a big ask and there are going to be a lot of technical challenges there as well. And every time there is this, you know, administration change, there is talk about, you know, you mentioned SLS, it has its fair share of delays and budget shortfalls and this recent testing issue. Um, do you foresee SLS surviving into another administration or is, is it too far into the program to kind of change course at this point? I think at this point, I mean, SLS is not going to go anywhere. I mean, they're just, you know, uh, already pregnant with SLS, as it were, that the Congress has spent too much money. It's getting closer to flying. NASA wants to fly it this year. You know, whether SLS, however, is sustainable over the long term, now that's another question. Um, uh, you know, if it flies once a year, twice a year, uh, at those enormous costs, billions of dollars uh, a launch, uh, and if there is at the same time coming online uh, other heavy lift uh, alternatives, say Blue Origin's New Glenn rocket, 
which it's you know developing. And every time I come down to your neck of the woods, Brendan, and see you know Blues Manufacturing site by Cape Canaveral, I mean your eyes kind of pop out of your head how big it is and what they're doing to the launch pad there. And of course, there's SpaceX's Starship, um, you know, which looks like a grain silo, but has shown you know it can fly. I mean, it has been able to to go up. Uh, several miles high and then come back down in, in a test. You know, say what you will about uh, Starship and SpaceX, but they've flown that thing, whereas SLS has never gone off the ground. Um, and that's just sort of a difference in the way they approach it. This is a, a, a prototype and it's nowhere near the full capacity uh, that Starship will eventually have, uh, but it's building. But I think if the commercial space sector can provide NASA with an alternative to SLS, that is safe, that's reliable, and that's more efficient and uh, and cost effective. That NASA will have no choice uh, but to turn to that. Now that doesn't quite exist on the level of SLS, so that's what they they have. But whether SLS is truly sustainable, I think remains to be seen. You're listening to Are We There Yet on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Christian Davenport. He's the space reporter at the Washington Post about the tenure of former NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine and what's ahead for the space agency under the leadership of President Biden. Our conversation continues after the break. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. With a new presidential administration comes new leadership at NASA. We're speaking with Christian Davenport. He covers space for the Washington Post about former director Jim Bridenstine's tenure at the agency and what might come next at NASA under the leadership of a Biden White House. Looking forward, you, you mentioned that the Biden administration is looking at you know current plans and what their priorities should be. What do we know? I mean, we did not hear much about space um, on the campaign trail, if anything. There's a line in the Democratic Party platform that says, quote, Democrats continue to support NASA and are committed to space exploration and discovery, but really short on details as to what this administration wants to do with NASA and space exploration. I mean, what's your sense? What what are they doing right now and what are they looking at? You're right. They have not uh, said a lot about it other than those lines you quoted in the Democratic Party platform. Uh, they haven't talked about it on the campaign trail. So there are a lot of questions. I actually asked uh, Jim Bridenstine if that concerned him. And he said, no, it's just it just shows me there's an opportunity to educate them on what's going on. And, you know, let's be clear, uh, there's a lot going on in the world right now with the pandemic and and social unrest and the economic calamity that we've seen. So that's sort of eaten up a lot of their time. But there are a lot of um, questions. We don't know, for example, if they will continue the National Space Council that was um, reinstated in the Trump administration. Will Vice President Harris chair that council the way that Vice President Pence did? Uh, We saw what they did, though, in terms of elevating OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House to a cabinet level position. And a lot of people think that's a sign that NASA too is gonna be more focused on earth sciences uh, than it was under the Trump administration. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're abandoning exploration, not by by any means. Um, I think they just wanna elevate science Uh, We don't know who the new NASA uh, administrator will be or or who they'll nominate. Uh, Indications are that they would like it to be a woman, if not a woman of color, to show uh, their commitment to diversity. And they want someone who will uh, showcase science. Uh, But again, I mean, people forget that the commercial crew program, while that launch happened 
uh, on the watch of the Trump administration, that first flight of American astronauts from U.S. soil last year, that was a program that began under the Obama administration. So clearly they're going to want to see that through and we'll champion that program. And you can see that model, as we've been talking about, being a stepping stone get onto the moon. But I think once we have a NASA administrator, we'll have a clear sense of what their direction is going to be. It took about a year, if not more, to get Jim Bridenstine nominated and confirmed. Do you foresee that it will take that long? And will there be as much uh, controversy as, as you outlined early in our conversation going forward? What can we expect uh, from this new NASA administrator? I have heard the talking to Democrats that they are trying to move with a sense of urgency on this. I mean, you know, clearly they had to get, you know, their intelligence officials and the, the Department of Defense and all that uh, set in place. They've got to deal with the coronavirus. They've got to deal with the stimulus bills and what they're going to do with the economy. And so clearly on the priority list, NASA is not, you know, going to be in that first or second tranche uh, of appointments, but that they do uh, want to move fast on it now that they have, uh, you know, talked about their appointments uh, in OSTP. OSTP, I think we'll see the naming of some science advisors and then uh, someone from NASA. Now, in terms of the controversy, I've been hearing some possible names, as I'm sure you have, into who uh, the nominees could be. Uh, I think they're going to be careful to uh, pick people that are uh, confirmable. Um, you know, they have uh, in the Senate now, things are tilted toward the Democrats' favor. But of the names I have been hearing, I haven't heard um, anyone uh, quite controversial. So I think they're going to take that into mind as well. And if it is a woman, I mean, I think that sends a statement. I mean, that would be the first administrator uh, in NASA's history to be a woman. So that would be significant um, as well. The, the previous administration, the Trump administration, did prioritize space, both civilian space, as we've been talking about with NASA, and military space with the creation of, of the Space Force, the re-upping of the Space Command. I, I'm wondering what you're hearing about a Biden administration and and this changing Congress about its focus on military space. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And there is that sort of uh, progressive coalition in the House that's pushing to uh, have the Space Force abolish uh, don't think that's going to happen. I mean, at this point, the Space Force is law. I mean, it is enshrined uh, by law. Uh, they're moving ahead with it. And I think, you know, covering this, that as members of Congress uh, and the new administration realize what's going on in space uh, and what our potential adversaries are doing, uh, talking about China and Russia, um, they ultimately end up seeing the need um, for a more robust response from the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies in space, and that um, the Space Force, uh, as you know, the more they understand it, makes sense. Um, I mean, you know, those satellites that are sitting up there, that little blue dot on your phone comes from uh, an Air Force satellite that also, you know, provides uh, missile warnings. Um, it provides uh, precision-guided munitions. So that you know, we the bomb hits the bad guys and not the school bus. It provides um, satellite communication for soldiers in the field. Uh, it provides reconnaissance and spying, and all of those assets up there are kind of like sitting ducks. And uh, the Russians and uh, uh, China and uh, North Korea and others, to a lesser degree, have demonstrated they have the ability to interfere, if not take out, uh, those satellites. So. Um, and that talk of space being a contested 
and congested domain, uh, I think resonates with members of Congress. And, you know, as part, when you talk about the Trump legacy, uh, the Space Force is one thing that I think uh, members on both sides of the aisle uh, want to keep. And finally, Christian, um, we, we covered quite a bit <coughs> about uh, the legacy of the Trump administration and what's to come under uh, Biden's leadership. But what are you most looking forward to in 2021? What are some budding stories that are on your radar? This year is just going to be an incredible year for space reporters like you and me. You know, we'll have the continuation of uh, the commercial crew program uh, and seeing, you know, quote unquote, routine flights to space, if, if you know human spaceflight could ever be called routine, which it can't, but having a regular cadence of flights. Uh, we'll see Boeing uh, try to you know, overcome its mishaps. It's, they're going to redo uh, the test of their Starliner spacecraft uh, without astronauts on board. That went awry in, at the very end of 2019, and they're back to try that again in March. And if that goes well, uh, they'll be flying uh, crews. So we'll have not one, but two providers uh, for human spaceflight. And staying on human spaceflight, you know, we've got um, the suborbital tourism flights, uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, wanting to take paying customers, uh, not to orbit, but up and down to the edge of space and back, uh, opening up space uh, to a lot of other people. Um, uh, you know, not <laughs> as many people who can afford the ticket price, which for Virgin Galactic is uh, $250,000 or so and may go up. We don't know what Blue Origin is. But we may also see private citizens flying on SpaceX, probably not this year, but early next, on uh, trips to the International Space Station, which would be the first time that's ever happened from U.S. soil. We've got three, uh, uh, three missions uh, to Mars uh, landing next month. One of those is, of course, NASA's with Perseverance that's going to land a rover on the surface of Mars that has a helicopter attached to it. Uh, so it's sort of a Wright Brothers uh, moment, but on the surface of Mars. Um, and, you know, just sort of, and, and then we'll see, you know, what happens in Congress with the Artemis mission uh, and how hard uh, NASA pushes for that, whether the SLS will be able to do uh, that flight. Uh, putting the Orion spacecraft without any astronauts on board in a mission in orbit around the moon, sort of uh, simulating what happened on Apollo 8. Um, we'll see if that happens this year. So there's just so much to keep track of. We've been speaking with Christian Davenport. He covers space for the Washington Post, and he's the author of The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the quest to colonize the cosmos. Christian, thanks so much for speaking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at AWTY space. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast or you can always email me. The show is Are We There Yet at WMFE.org. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed to never miss an episode. You can subscribe on NPR One's iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, check out another podcast from WMFE, Drained. My colleague Amy Green wades into the controversy around one of the most ambitious environmental restoration efforts ever taken. Drained examines the massive plan to restore the Everglades and poses the big question about the future of this natural wonder. Can it be saved? Get Drained wherever you get this podcast or visit WMFE.org for more info. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>